All right, here we go. Friday the 5th, five days into the new year. Welcome in, everybody. We've had a great week so far. Dave Rieger, Danielle, how many push-ups do you think I did this morning? That's a great question. I was uh, waiting all morning to find out how many you did. That would be zero. Oh. Zero So you started at you were going to do 100, and then you did 12, and then you were going to do 12 every day, and now it's zero. Yeah, but the day's not over. What happened? That's what I was going to say. It's not over yet, Dave. It's a good point. The day's not over. You don't have to do it in the morning, Dave. Please. You're assigning failure to me when I have shown you that I am a man of my word. So I'm going to do at least. I would never. I would never do that, ever. Listen, let's, let's end this week. Let's end this week with a lot of positivity and a bang, so to speak. Hey, there's a Lions game on Sunday. Won't do too much football because we're going to have Lomas on in the one o'clock hour. But the Lions are planning on playing all their starters. They're playing the Vikings. They're going to they're gonna go ahead and win this game, we assume. And it looks very much like we're going to see a Vikings or a Rams team the following week for a playoff. That'll be pretty cool stuff. But if you're the coach, Dan Campbell, do you put all your starters out there? in week 18 essentially and let them play risking injury when we're going to be in the playoffs for the first time in eons if they had if they had locked up the three seed then i would say he probably would sit his starters but there is the chance that they can still go up to the two seed if dallas and philadelphia lose so i guess you kind of have to play your starters to win the game uh with the chance that it can get you potentially an extra home playoff game you know, these Lions, they did not play well off the bye. A lot of the guys who were, came off of a longer-term injury or had a week off have not played well. I, I wonder if it's not in his mind that, you know what, I'm just going to keep this train rolling, let them go in with a bunch of momentum, and we'll we'll roll the dice a little bit. I mean, I, historically, I mean, historically, it's always been a question on if you're a coach and you've locked up your whatever playoff seat, and if you start, if you start your starters or if you sit them, if you start them, you risk injury. If you sit them, you risk them losing the edge that they have. So it's always a very interesting how different coaches have handled it throughout the years when it comes to the, the last week of the NFL season. Yeah, you're right. All right, listen, we're going to talk some green energy stuff. Uh, guest coming on, that Dr. Nathaniel Cogley. It's kind of interesting. This There's a project in New York that was for offshore wind. And the offshore wind project itself got a whole bunch of federal funding and subsidies and the New York Energy Council or whatever it's called. We're kind of coalescing with the Biden administration and they really were touting this like, here we go. This is this is Bidenomics, you know, working for us as a kind of a beacon of not only the, the climate side of things, but of the economic effect that it might have. And within, I don't know, what, 90 days or so, New York contractors have pulled out of this, essentially saying this isn't viable. Do you think we're ever going to see wind really take off? I mean, I know solar's got some, it's got some legs. Like there's a legitimate case to be made for could we be doing more solar to alleviate fossil fuel? But this wind thing, every every time it seems to to start up, it, it ends up being a disaster. That's interesting. I mean, here in the Midwest, um, you know, we go months without seeing the sun. So solar, I always found to be pretty interesting. Uh, but there's definitely uh, a lot of wind usually, but you kind of never know. So uh, it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, in states where like that whole ocean, you know, in, in the, the sea idea, right? Like it's fascinating because if you're, if you have a state full of people that say, look, we're voting against this because we don't want to look out our back window or we don't want to be driving down the highway and look and see windmills. Okay, fine. Let's put them out in the ocean. 
And let's put them out in the ocean, by the way, far enough where you can't see them from the shore, which was oftentimes the knock on doing, you know, oil drilling in the oceans that you're not going to see that unless you're out there on a boat anyway. But clearly it's a much more costly thing to do. I mean, you got to boat, all that stuff, barge it out there. You got to get underwater construction. I think he mentioned something like, you know, five or six times in the article, the cost of a normal wind thing. And now the whole thing is a bit of a failure, at least for the time being. Guess what else we're talking about today? We are going to talk about older folks, let's call it 50 and up, really jumping on the marijuana train. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting interview, I predict. Listen, I know quite a few people in my life that I was surprised to find out. And I'm not a, I'm not a marijuana guy, honest to God. It's, it's never been my thing. I don't have any interest in it. But I know a lot of people who are. I've always been surprised to find out that someone was a recreational marijuana user. And a lot of them in my life, especially in the golf community, tend to be older. And they're a lot of them, too. They're, they're academics. They're pretty smart. Like, you know, I was the principal of a high school, and I was an engineer. And you smoke weed on a regular basis? Heck, yeah, buddy. You got to relax somehow. Now, maybe those guys aren't drinkers. I, and that's just their their relaxation, you know, but the, the ratio of people that are reporting now in their, in their fifties and sixties, that they're using marijuana on a regular basis. Is that a byproduct of the laws having changed? Have we kind of opened the floodgates, if you will, to the medicinal benefits of, or they're not even smoking. Maybe they're using uh, oils or gummies or ointments. Maybe it's for pain relief. I'm super interested in that part of the conversation. You have people in your life that are marijuana people that have ever surprised you and you go, really you? Um, I, um, I don't have very many that surprised me. Danielle, I'm sure maybe. No, I don't think I have anyone that surprises me. I just think it's so normal. So if you do it, oh, cool. That's all. See, to me, it still feels abnormal. Maybe that's just growing up in kind of a, a more conservative, you know, religious household. I mean, honest to God, I, I, there's a lot of people when they, I found out they smoke weed, I was like, are you serious? I didn't even see marijuana in person until I was about 25 years old. That seems like today that would be the absolute opposite of the norm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that is the, the new, it's like the new normal now. I think that's why you're not surprised anymore because it's, it's legal for medicinal recreational use and uh, everybody does it. And there's a lot of people that swear by it for not just for aches and pains and helping get to sleep and anxiety. And there seems to be a lot of uses for it. So I think it's just that it's normal and everybody seems to do it. So I don't think that we're surprised anymore. I think it's actually surprising that um, different states don't sell it. I for, I for, I completely forgot. And when I, when I went down South, I was like, Oh, where's the, where's the dispensaries? And they're like, we don't have those here. Oh, 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 I forgot that that's a, that not everyone can get this. Yeah, I don't know. I think the world might have been a better place without them, but I seem to be clearly in the minority on that particular one. We'll talk movies, too, as we are accustomed to doing on a Friday. I tried to find a movie last week to take kids to. One of my daughters is home from college, and the boys were hanging around, and everyone was looking at me like, okay, this is boring. You know, being a family is boring sometimes. What can we go do? And I couldn't find anything that I thought looked like it'd be fun. So it'll be interesting uh, that Greg Russell is going to come on. He's going to talk to us about a movie called Night Swim. Seems like some kind of terror flick. I haven't I haven't seen. I think, Dave, you saw it, right? I did, we, I did see it, yes. Uh, I, I have a lot to say about that movie, yes. 
Well, that, you should do the segment. I don't have a lot to say about it. I don't, like, I don't like scary stuff. There's enough violence in the world anyway. I don't need to see somebody get hacked up in a swimming pool. You know, I'm only imagining that that's what it is. It's but. interesting because uh, it's tough to make. I think I feel like it's tough to make a good horror movie these days. We've seen everything. You know, I think it's I think it's tough. And I'm a I'm a big horror movie uh, guy. And I think that it's just it's tough to make anything that's going to shock you. Anything that you're not going to find funny or that you're going to relate back to an older horror movie that they kind of borrowed from. Could be. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It depends on how you, what you do to relax. I tried to watch the sound of freedom the other night. I shut it off halfway through. It's just too, it's too heavy for my heart. Yeah. That was a heavy That's, movie. Yeah. It is what it is. Okay. We're back after the break with Dr. Nathaniel Cogley. Everybody hang tight. It's going to be a good one. All right. Well, good afternoon. Welcome back into the show. There is a whole bunch of headlines about green energy things. The Biden administration has made quite a bit of fanfare out of how some of these techniques and some of the things they lobbied hard for were playing a key role in the Bidenomics uh, success. But lately, there's been a handful of companies, one specifically, that have been pulling out of some of these contracts because they just seem non-viable. And to fill us in on that story specifically, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley is joining us from Charleston State University. He's the Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cogley. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Sorry I messed up your name. It's not That's not like me. But let's <laughs> fill us in on this story. Set it up for us, this particular New York case that's so interesting. Well, in 2010, the U.S. Energy Information Agency said that offshore wind power is the most expensive energy generating technology being considered. You know, so leave it to some Democratic run states in the U.S. federal government to say, well, the most expensive. Let's go for that one. Yeah, let's let's have some government mandates and government subsidies on that most expensive. So offshore wind is, is highly inefficient because of the infrastructure is very expensive to build out there in the in the deep water uh, to transmit that energy is expensive and to maintain that equipment out there in the ocean is very expensive in fact it ends up costing around five times the amount that uh, like a gas-powered plant can produce and so this is not a creation of the free market this is a creation of politics government mandates and subsidies and it would be one thing for a, a state like new york to say well we just like this renewable energy source for whatever environmental reasons, so we're willing to pay more for it. But uh, that's not exactly how it plays out, because with federal government subsidies and the budget deficit, you know, we're all paying for it. Your listeners in Detroit are paying for these attempts to have offshore wind out there on the in the New, Eng New England seaboard. You know, and what we have right now with Equinor pulling out of the deal, um, they say inflation, they say interest rates and supply chain issues make their original deal unfeasible at the moment, but they're angling for a rebid and a new deal and higher rates and as many subsidies as possible. So uh, this is the latest salvo in the negotiations, but we're all paying for it. Is the New York State Energy Research and Developmental Authority, are they willing to hear that rebid? Does it seem like this might be something that comes back around or was this a surprise and they said, no way, we can't do it with today's costs? Well, I think they're determined to pursue. Uh, they've set uh, certain standards that they want 70% of their electricity to be renewable, and they want at least nine gigawatts from, from wind power. You know, right now they only have about 30% renewable, and those are from hydro dams, not from offshore wind. Offshore wind is, is highly risky. So um, 
I believe the state of New York, you know, will will uh, you know go through a rebid process, but sure. um, they, they they balked at giving the company different terms and were agreed to. But now that the rebid's open, I think that this company's going to still think it's it's going to be able to provide the best offer. But it's just one more part of these things never play out the way they're sold to the public. You know, they're sold at a certain price, and it's going to be cost efficient and renewable sure. and all these great union jobs. But it always comes in over budget. You're always going to pay more. More than the government tells you you're going to pay. This is like this year's uh, Obama had the Solyndra problem. It's kind of exactly, similar in right. terms of its of its tenor. What is in terms of the actual problem itself with that with the wind offshore? Is the wind offshore a play to keep it out of what would be the planes or in in sight to people on highways? I mean, is that and it's clearly far more expensive to do it that way just because the building alone, like as you mentioned. Why, why did they go that route? Is there not enough plane space in New York for them to set them up on land? Right. So the on-land uh, wind farms are starting to be some pushback from these rural communities that have them placed there. I guess there's some low-frequency noise generation that, that bothers some of the communities. Also, the wind is more intermittent on land. You know, it's not always blowing as hard, you know, out there in the ocean as, as harder wind. But um, it, it's... This has been sold as something that Europe has done quite a bit. China's done a bit, but uh, it's been always being sold as becoming cost effective in the future based on their projections of cost, but it never actually is cost effective. But it's sold as, hey, there's great, powerful wind out there. You know, we can tap into it in a place that doesn't disturb our communities. But of course, the fishermen are complaining about <laughs> these, right. these offshore wind windmills. So it's more of a like a you know, it's like this ideal solution that never really is quite justified, but it seems to um, have some political saliency in some circles. Nathaniel, if you remove all the political bias from it and what your, you know, any kind of predetermination might be about the effectiveness or the, the efficacy in general of green power versus fossil fuel, when you hear these conversations as a person who's an expert in it, what's the first thing you drop on them to say, look, most people don't understand this, but... Well, you raised Solyndra, which is a very good example of how government subsidies create corruption and grift. You know, that's basically the government handing out money, picking winners, handing out money to sometimes connected contractors who don't always deliver. You know, the other way that you can try to encourage a certain type of outcome is by taxing the thing you don't want rather than subsidizing the thing you do want. So instead of trying to subsidize some of these projects that aren't really viable, you know, taxing uh, energy that, um, you know, is out there is a better way to discourage that form of energy and let the free market create its alternatives. But, you know, taxing gas and oil is politically untenable. And so this is why they avoid taxing, uh, you know, oil and gas because um, the voters don't want to pay for that. But they're sold some fantasy idea about how these alternative forms of energy are going to be viable. But, you know, you pay for government. You pay for government either through taxes or inflation. And so these offshore wind projects, you're paying for it at the grocery store. Everyone's going to pay for these types of things at the grocery store. Sure. When you look at this entire landscape between solar, for example, and wind, are either one of those viable enough in terms of infrastructure and capability and the production that they're going to have, that they'll ever take a percentage of the fossil fuel dependency away? Or is that just an absolute fallacy at this point? No, I believe, uh, you know, someone like 
Elon Musk has some credibility with me when he throws out ideas. So he's big on solar and he's big on the idea that certain parts of the earth with high intensity, you know, sunlight can can generate a lot of electricity. And of course, uh, it, only in the daytime, which is why the, he has this uh, battery development system to, to save that energy for the nighttime. But the free market with innovators like Elon Musk can eventually make some of these viable. The problem is when the government jumps in and, and tries to suck the purchasing power out of the free market to do these things before they're profitable, which is what we have going on in New York and the eastern seaboard. So if, if you give it time and you let the free market operate, you can get some solutions. Um, but when the government intervenes prematurely, you know, they, they don't necessarily solve problems. They sometimes create problems. Yeah. Well, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley, thanks for your expertise on this. I'm sure we'll get calls on this. But in the meantime, thanks for coming on and sharing some of that with us. This is a tangled web, so we'll see how it goes. Thanks so much. Well, you, you heard it there. Look, 800-859-0957. Let's, let's hear from you on this. Do you think that wind is a viable alternative? I'm not sure that it is. I mean, we've seen this happen over and over again. Solar may be slightly more so. Fossil fuels, the argument kind of rages on. But are we just headed down the wrong road entirely trying to circumvent the problem with fossil fuels? 800-859-0957. Let's get the phones fired up. It's about the only window we're going to have today for talks amongst one another, which I think will be really good. We're back in just a few. Well, okay there. Lively conversation with Nathaniel Cogley about the wind. Let's go out to those phones, 800-859-0957. Let's visit with Rod in Plymouth. What's going on, Rod? What do you think about the wind energy thing? Well, I think it's all-inclusive. It's more than just wind. It's, it's pneumatic. It's hydro. It's hydro. You know, the seas have a lot of energy in them. However, I think we're lacking a lot of knowledge by a lot of, you know, very intelligent Einstein engineers. And in the next 30 years, AI is really going to calculate all the different wind patterns and, and velocities and speeds. And, and I think wind energy with maybe gravity-type batteries, uh, it, it's going to be sustainable indefinitely for maybe 80% of the world's needs. But I say for right now, because of AI, let's drill, baby, drill. Let's enjoy the low-cost energy because that is what creates a great economy. Low cost energy. Thanks, Greg. Rod. When you reference when you reference AI, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that AI is is self teaching itself as well. It can make so many computations and so many predictions that are correct. For instance, do we really know how much wind energy is sustained throughout the entire year around the globe? That's the very first question we should ask if we're really believing that wind turbines are going to be the answer. And I don't, Rod, that's a good point, I suppose. I don't know how that wind turbines are, have been purported to be the answer, but I have not actually heard anybody suggest that, you know, AI models of any kind are constantly working on this particular conundrum. So there's a curiosity there, I suppose. That's an interesting point. How about Bruce in Sterling Heights? What's up, Bruce? Uh, uh, solar selenium, copper sulfate, all kinds of chemicals. When you, If you put that on your roof, demand that they give you a list of the chemicals that are going in it because if you have a fire and they spray water on that thing, it's going to break. 
guess what you got? Hazardous waste site. Good, good plan. And wind and solar, they now have a nuclear fusion that they just came out with, just now developed. It's going to replace them all. And we're going to pay a bunch of money in between until this nuclear fusion really catches on. But they just they just announced that, that they've had some real successful nuclear fusion, which is okay. going to make was, smaller was power plants. Bruce, was that an announcement out of the United States? Was it a private company, or do you not know? I think it was one of the universities in the United States. I thought out of Pennsylvania or somewhere, but I'm not sure. I just uh, I saw the article a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, year, for years they've been working on fusion for coal. Yeah. So that may come to reality, too, because so, they said they were pretty close on that. Where and fusion, it, it doesn't give you any waste. Come from an where these windmills and these solars, where, where's it all going when their renewable kicks in? Because they're going to renew them all. And guess what that's going to cost? What's a windmill's life? They can't, they, from what I understand, and this is from a person who installs the bases, that once that windmill has lived its useful life, you can't use the base again to put another one on. Now you've got to dig another 150 feet in the ground and put all that concrete and everything in to replace them. All right, so they're well, selling us a bill of goods, but were I the power the... company? Were I the power company, I could mark up every address in town? No problem. I'd rather mark up a big number than a small one. All right, Bruce. Thanks. Appreciate your input. Dave Rieger, you know, this is never a subject that lets anybody down. I, I'm not sure, you know, Bruce's comments there about if I put panels on the roof and they're full of all these different minerals and chemicals, and then my house is on fire and they come and put it out, I suppose, with water. Um, that creates a big mess and it's, it's broken. I, I, I would imagine, wouldn't you, that if you go and put solar panels on your roof, you have to get with your insurance people to let them know that you've added this, this structure to your roof because it's got a cost inherently that has to be covered by insurance in the case of a fire, wouldn't you think? I would guess that, that would, uh, that's how it would work. Um, so I've always been a little leery on solar only because here in Michigan we go so many months without seeing the yeah. sun we're the second grayest state that's the, the knock on solar i don't think has ever been the fact that it doesn't work it's the it's the problem of storage yeah there's not enough batteries i mean someone gave the example not that long ago if you took like a, a kroger or a meyer some kind of supermarket and they wanted to convert to solar they would need a, a bank of batteries approximately a, th a third of the size of the store itself for the and to hold the batteries that would contain that amount of energy, especially in a state that has a tremendous amount of downtime when it comes to sun. It's a bit of a tangled web. I don't think clearly, I don't think anyone, even the, the Elon Musk types of the world that is in the midst of developing different, much, much smaller batteries that are far more efficient, thinks that solar is the actual answer. They just think in some areas, you know, solar works. Like, look, I know a lot of people in California and Arizona that have solar panels on their roof and it works. And they actually get some kind of rebate to their energy bill because of what they put out into the grid. So it's not like it doesn't work. It just doesn't see it's very, very expensive to do. Right. Um, uh, he was talking about nuclear fusion. Um, I saw, I looked up real quick and, and I found an article back from November where the U.S. is going to lay out its first international strategy to commercial to commercialize nuclear fusion power at an upcoming climate summit in Dubai. So um, that doesn't sound like anything that's in our backyard. No, right it sounds now. like it's uh, a little bit of ways away. 
Nuclear is, nuclear is viable, but it's a long time off. But listen, we have to make sure that everyone knows automotive, automotive news is brought to you by Bridgestone. No matter what the next generation of mobility will be, it will be on the wheels and Bridgestone will be there. Bridgestone. CES. Journey. CES is next week in Las Vegas, and it's going to be a decidedly less Detroit-flavored event than in recent years. None of the Detroit Three are participating. It's odd that the trade show that dominates early January and effectively forced Detroit to find another time to hold its auto show won't have any of our local automakers on hand. Stellantis was planning on being at CES, but then it pulled out last fall during the UAW strike. At the time, it also bailed on SEMA and the Los Angeles Auto Show. Now in 2024, it's looking at events on a case-by-case basis and choosing to skip Chicago, Toronto, and North Texas shows or leave them to dealers to support. It is the dealers who benefit most directly from the boost in consumer interest and attention that follows an auto show. So for now, more of them are going to have to pay for it. With this week's Automotive View, I'm Jamie Butters, host of the Daily Drive podcast and executive editor of Automotive News. So listen, you you all, and I myself too, we need to keep an important eye, a very, very close eye, on any grocery store loyalty points that we have. Michigan Attorney General has just filed charges against scammers who are accessing all those perks. Marie Osborne, the bell of the ball, JR Senior <laughs> News Analyst, has all the details. Hi, Marie. Hello, Chris. So in announcing these charges, Attorney General Dana Nessel called this a sophisticated widespread criminal enterprise. Yep, all centered around those somewhat innocuous grocery store loyalty points. We're talking about the Meyer M perks here, their accounts. These were the ones that were targeted by a scammer and a Grand Haven man has been arraigned on charges that he scammed Grand Rapids based Meyer out of a million dollars, this affecting hundreds of customers. The M-Perks worked by customers building store credit points with their purchases. The points then can be used as cash value. A.G. Dana Nessel said Meyer customers and M-Perks account holders had their accounts compromised, login credentials sold online, and then their uh, accrued purchase points were stolen and used fraudulently. It was the customers who first noticed the problem. They complained of vanishing points on their accounts, and that prompted the company to contact the Michigan State Police, and an investigation then ensued. In September, a search warrant was executed, resulting in the seizure of $400,000 in cash and cryptocurrency at the 22-year-old's Grand Haven home. Meyer reinstated the full balance to customers with verified thefts, at a cost to the company of more than a million dollars. This investigation, by the way, not over. Meyer operates stores in several states. They believe there may be more people affected. Now, Chris, what can we do as consumers to keep these accounts safe? Change your passwords often. Use two-factor authentication to make sure that, that you are the person accessing your account. And do not use the same password across logins. Wow, that's a wild story. So this is a 22-year-old that somehow hacked into people's Meyer M-Perks accounts? Yes, yep. Those innocent little grocery uh, perks that a lot of us use at the grocery store, 
And uh, I was t- we were talking about this before the show with Brian Morton. Brian says, I don't keep track of my grocery store perks and points. And I said, well, you really should. They act as cash when you shop. Wait, so that's an interesting phrase. They act as cash. Yeah. So does that mean that if now I go to Meyer all the time, especially mm-hmm. with as many kids as I have, I spend a fortune in there. Now, I don't <laughs> use the end perks thing, which I probably should. Oh, you the, should. Yes. I know. The one gal that I see all the time in the checkout line, and she's a sweetheart. She always looks at me and says, you still don't have end perks? And I say, no, I'm too lazy for that. And I'm too disorganized for that. But the reality is, if I can if use the end perks as cash, does that mean I can only use them as a cash credit for purchases in the store? Or in can- the my, uh, Yes, this is just for Meyer. A lot of other grocery store chains have similar things. And, you know, they vary from store to store a little bit. But for Meyer, uh, yeah, it, you, you redeem them in the store. You can get... Uh, uh, it'll, I guess when you scan your, your product, uh, it'll tell you, you know, you have, you can get a dollar off of this or that's how it would work. That's wild. So, so it's real money. It's real money. As long as you're shopping in. Yes. Yes. Spend a million dollars in Meyer. Yeah. I mean, isn't that amazing? A million. Well, um, he then, I, I think how this worked was, I'm not, I'm not a criminal mind here, but I think how this worked was uh, that he, first of all, the the um, the leaked account and the password data from a was actually from a breach on something called My Fitness Pal app with MPerks accounts. So that's how he accessed the MPerk accounts. Yeah. Uh, the, then he sold those logins on the dark web for cryptocurrency. That's how that's how he made uh, air quotes his money. Good grief. That's unbelievable. I don't know. I'm not very good at this kind of stuff. I'm the most the least tech savvy 47 year old mm-hmm. there is around. But that's a that's a scary story. And I suppose this probably is is relevant to anybody who's got grocery store things. I always kind of laugh when I see the, the women in my life that on their keychain, they have 15 of those different mm-hmm. little tabs. And I have none of the tabs. And someone says, well, you have a rewards account with us. I says, I don't think so. I'll give you my wife's number to see if she does. But wow, yeah. fascinating story. Yep. Well, and, thanks for- and, and it's a million dollars that Meyer is paying back to its customers. So if I had a million dollars in Meyer M perks, I could probably keep our refrigerator full for two years. <laughs> yeah, with the all way, those kids, way, I don't know. Crazy, I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks again. We'll see Thank you. Thank you. Dave Rieger, how would you spend a million dollars at Meyer, buddy? That's a great question. A million dollars of M perks money. Uh, maybe maybe get some uh, money off of gas at the gas station. That's got to work. The M-Perks for that, right? Our Meyer doesn't have a gas station. Here. Oh, okay. Actually, neither of the Meyers by me have a gas station, but that's a good point, I, I mean, suppose. Uh, the two-factor two authentication and all that, that's like, that's pretty complex stuff. A it is. A breach somewhere else ends up being uh, a hack job. By a 22-year-old kid, essentially, who sells the information. I'm still processing this just based off On the, the dark web. Story. Don't I'm forget a, yeah, that. Dark web. What is the dark web? I, the dark web's in movies to me. The dark web's like the is like the, the underground web. You know, you got to be like a hacker, you know? Oh, man, if you told me that I could have a million dollars, if I could log on to the dark web before the end of the show, I guarantee you I would have the same exact amount of money. That question always takes me back to the to the movie Brewster's Millions, if you if you ever saw that movie. Yeah, that's like a Richard Pryor movie. Yeah, so the in the what that movie was about was they gave 